so uh, my name is Robbie Nutter, and I am from Kansas. I'm curious how many of you have ever been to Kansas? Okay. What did you do there? Wait, a week. What, a week? So you went to Focuston. That's not really Kansas. What else? You drove through it. That's what most, that's most people's experience in Kansas. What did you do? You went to a concert? What concert? Journey. They were in Kansas? Kansas City? Might have been Missouri. <laughs> it was the most side. Yeah, it was the Missouri side. So um, I got up this morning, and uh, the, so in Kansas, the, usually the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is um, I check the weather to see what's changed since I went to sleep the night before and what kind of clothes I should wear. Last Sunday, it snowed two, two inches. I think today it was in the 60s. In Kansas, they say, uh, if you don't like the weather, just wait. That's kind of the joke. If you don't like the weather, just wait 10 minutes. That's because uh, we're right, you know, right in the middle and just climate is uh, always changing. And so um, I woke up this morning. I was like, I don't need to check the weather. It's like if I lived in California, it'd save, save time every day that I wouldn't have to check weather. So, and I also, I'm so, I'm so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this. I'm so grateful that it worked out for us to be here and for the invitation. And it's a real treat to be in California. Uh, man, I'm uh, feel so blessed just to be to be able to worship with you too this weekend. But I tend to remember places I've been by the food that I eat in those places. And I had fish and chips yesterday at the Santa Monica Pier, and I had In-N-Out Burger today on the way up to camp. And so I was just like, yeah, In-N-Out Burger gets more of applause than fish and chips. But I was like, I mean, I've, from, for a Kansas kid, I mean, I was like, this is awesome. Like, I, I got so much. I got, like, all kinds of stuff I can talk about to my friends back home just uh, from those meals. So if you have your Bibles, if you go ahead and open up to Jeremiah chapter 1, and I wanted to introduce my family to you. I, I showed this picture last night at, at USC. I want to show it again. But uh, God has been so good to me and given me a wife. We, uh, 20 years. We just had our 20th year anniversary this summer. And, um, yeah, Gail, we met at Christian Challenge at Kansas State. And then uh, three kids. Our youngest is Jason. Uh, he is 12. He's a sixth grader. My daughter, Sarah, is a freshman. She's 14. She's a freshman. Uh, today, they didn't have school. And so she and her friends went to Starbucks. So mom and dad are out of town. She went to Starbucks with her friends and ate, had a picnic at the park. And they just, she sat out and drank coffee and talked. And she is high on the hog today, like, you know, Miss Independent. Uh, my 14-year-old thinks that was a pretty special day. And then uh, my oldest is Levi, and he is a junior in high school. He came home from school uh, last week. And we were talking about his day. He's like, man, it's rough. And he said uh, in one of his classes, the teacher uh, put, put like signs around the room, strongly disagree, disagree, undecided, uh, agree, strongly agree. And then the teacher began to go through some really controversial cultural topics. 
and had everybody in the class stand up, these juniors in high school, and they had to go stand in the place where they were at. And so my son was like alone a lot of that class period because he's, he's a young man trying to follow God and, and just a lot of these kind of controversial topics, um, he was kind of being, feeling alienated from, from his peers in his class. He said it was awful. And I was proud of him for trying to, to, to live under his convictions, but I was also just thinking, you know, the, the world that he's growing up in, the, the world that you're going to school in, that, that you're, you're a generation behind me, is a lot different than the world that I grew up in. Our culture today seems to be in chaos and turbulence. There's mass, I hear about mass shootings all the time, you know, from schools to squares in Paris to Christmas parties. Refugee crisis, there's border controversy, racism has become center stage in the United States again the last few years. The hashtag Black Lives Matter was one of the most popular hashtags, um, I think two years ago. That hashtag has given way to the hashtag uh, Me Too movement. Assault, abuse, and mental health issues have touched all of our lives, I'm guessing. I don't know if any of us have kind of, you know, are too removed from, from those issues. The brokenness and the pain in the world Seem to have come out, come more out in the open. Just, I mean, just, ah, it's everywhere. Political turmoil in our nation, provoking fear and anger. We got to go to Hollywood this morning and, and uh, walked out onto the street, and there's all these pe- people taking pictures and all this graffiti around uh, Donald Trump's star there. Just uh, political turmoil in our country. Debates about stem cell research, how we define, how we value human life. A couple years ago, the Supreme Court ruled that marriage being defined as the union between a man and a woman is not a correct definition. All these major culture-shaping issues happening at one time. So no matter what news station you prefer or don't prefer, or where you fall on different controversial issues, what, what everyone agrees on is that we're living in uncanny and really turbulent times. And so what I want to talk about this weekend, what I'm really excited to dive into, is as followers of Christ, what does it mean to honor and represent Christ in this world, to stand faithful to him in the midst of turbulent times, in the midst of shifting trends and shifting values in our culture, especially when along with the turbulence, there seems to be a growing animosity towards Christianity. How do we, as followers of Christ... Stand firm in the midst of the turbulence. And that's the question that's going to direct us this weekend and and, uh, as we spend time in this book of Jeremiah. And i got to tell you that no book of the Bible has been more, uh, had more of an impact and been more encouraging and challenging and meaningful to me in the last decade probably than than this book. There there was a period of probably five, five or six years I read this. Every morning I woke up, I'd read in Jeremiah. I'd read it from beginning to end, and I'd go back to the beginning, read it to the end, and go back to the beginning and just read it over. I just couldn't. I'd, I'd try to get away from it, and I just loved it so much. In fact, I, I want to show the next picture. 
after this was going on, reading Jeremiah every day for a few years, my wife uh, gave me one of my favorite gifts I've ever received. This is a, anybody seen this before? <laughs> Has anybody not from Kansas seen this before? This, uh, anybody know who, who painted this by chance? You might be able to tell just by, if you're into art, just by the lighting in it. What'd you say? Somebody? Rembrandt, yeah. It's, it's, I think it's, so um, this is Rembrandt's interpretation of the prophet Jeremiah. And my wife gave me a print of this. This hangs in the living room in our home. It's, it's one of my uh, favorite things in our home. And I, I sit across from it every morning when I get up and, and read my Bible. And he completed this painting in 1630. And I'm wondering what you notice about this picture. What do you think Rembrandt's trying to... He's sad. He is sad. It's the, the title of this painting is called The Prophet Jeremiah Mourning Over the Destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah... He ministered in Judah for at least 40 years. His ministry began in 627 B.C. And, he, and he, he was a prophet for the nation all the way up into the exile, which we know in history that the exile happened in 587, so at least 40 years, but on into the exile. I think he, he ministered closer to 50 years. There, Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible, most people don't know that. Chapter and verse, Psalms is the longest book in the Bible. But by word count, Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. And all these messages that God gives to the people through Jeremiah, not one record of any person ever converting to his message. Half a century of weeping for people, praying for people, pleading with people, and nobody listened to him. And then here's the, distru- the exile finally happens. And Jeremiah ends up going off into exile with people. And here's Rembrandt depicts him as this mourning over it. Anything else you observe? Might be kind of hard to see. What's that? Yeah, he does. He does. He was beaten. Uh, he's left for dead in a cistern one time kicked out of the temple. He, uh, he wrote, God told him to write down everything that had happened to him. And he wrote it, I think this might be in like chapter 35, 37. They read it in the temple. They took it to the king and the king ripped out one page at a time and threw it in the fire. So all this time that he spent writing down everything that God had told him. So he sat down and he did it again. What else do you observe? Contemplating, yeah. 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 So I actually was in Germany, I was in Europe about a year and a half ago. Some of you were there. I I, I met some of you there. Uh, And after the conference that we were a part of, I went up to Amsterdam, went to the Rijksmuseum, and there's a bunch of Rembrandts in there, and I got to see this painting in real life. It's awesome. And I'm not, like, really into art, but I was so moved by it. And I have this painting on my wall, and and I've I've studied it, and I've I've just kind of contemplated it. But when I saw the real 
thing, I saw all these things I didn't see in my print. Like you can't see it in there, but there's the ruins of Jerusalem's off into the left, and you can't see it in the print, but in the real one you can see it. Just like, so yeah, a lot of contemplation, but, but I want to I wanna jump in. Jeremiah chapter 1. So he looks, I think the first thing we said was sad, discouraged. One commentator said that Jeremiah is perplexed in the midst of his prophetic obedience to God. I'll look at, at Jeremiah 1, verse 17. God speaks to Jeremiah and says this, Now get ready. <clears throat> Stand up and tell them everything that I command you. Do not be intimidated by them. So tell the nations, tell, tell your people, your, this crowd of people, Everything that I command you, do not be intimidated by them, or I will cause you to cower before them. Today, I am the one who has made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the population. They will fight against you, but never prevail over you, since I am with you to rescue you. This is the Lord's declaration. I remember reading that several years ago, and I was, I was reading through, I was like, man, that sounds so tough. But, like, if God was speaking to me, I just wanted to say, I'm going to make you like quiet waters, you know? Like, like the Psalms wrote about, I'm going to make you like the greener pastures, like, like the sunset over the mountains, or like the cool ocean breeze, you know, that we felt yesterday at Santa Monica Pier, but he doesn't say that. He uses war words. He uses battle terminology. He says, Jeremiah, I'm going to make you like a fortified city, like bronze walls, like an iron pillar. And not just one person, not just two people, but all the people, the crowds, will rail against you, but they will not prevail. That's what I've called you to. And so for the last several years, I have been arrested in my heart as I keep reading through this book, amazed at God, what God did in and through Jeremiah in turbulent times. And so I was actually, when I was um, doing some study on Jeremiah and I was thinking about these words, and I found that there's an iron pillar in Delhi, India. And I got a picture of that, that, that thing. Archaeologists... Well, let me read you. Let me read. Like, this iron pillar is in Delhi. It's, 20, it's a 23-foot column. The pillar has attracted the attention of archaeologists and material scientists because of its high resistance to corrosion. It weighs over 13,000 pounds. It's 23 feet high, over 13,000 pounds. They estimate that it was made in 402 CE, 402 AD, and it was transported to its current location in 1233. Over 800 years after it was made, it was transported to Delhi. This is amazing. There's a dent on it. I think if you go to the next slide, I've got a, I don't know if you can see it. There's a little dent that's 156 inches from the ground. And on the back of the dent, there's a little fissure. You can see the, the fissure there. Maybe if you can see it. Um, they think where that came from is that in 1739, a Muslim army came in and conquered Delhi. And the leader of the Muslim army, his name was Nadir Shah, they, they think he brought in a cannon 
and placed it right up in front of the pillar because they were going to build a mosque right there and they wanted to tear down everything that was Hindu. And so at close range, they fired a cannonball and that cannonball hit the pillar where there's that little dent and fissure. And they think what happened is that the cannonball shattered because in that mosque, they found fragments of shrapnel all in like the south corridor of this mosque. And so what I think happened is that Nadir Shah brought in a cannon, fired it at close range, the cannonball shattered and began to, to pelt at the Muslim mosque. And Nadir Shah said, I think that we'll just leave the pillar where it stands. And they took the cannon away. Yeah, that's after it'd been there for, it'd been built for over like 1,200 years. So crazy, corrosion-free, some ruler fired a ball, a cannonball at it at close range, and, and uh, there it still stands. And that's the picture that we have of Jeremiah in chapter 1. God tells Jeremiah, in the midst of these chaotic times, I will make you an iron pillar that will stand up against the crashing waves of the surrounding culture. And that's what we want. In the midst of an ever-changing world that we as followers of Christ would stand fast, we'd hold fast to an unchanging God. So that's what I'm going to talk about uh, this weekend. They say that Jeremiah lived and ministered in one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult season in the Old Testament. And he served God faithfully for about half a century in the midst of a culture that just railed on him. And so what I want to talk about tonight, um, if we're going to be a people that stand strong, we need to be a people that can rest in our purpose, that we can rest in our calling. So I want to talk a little bit about discerning God's call on our lives, God's purpose for our lives. So let's back up to um, chapter 1, verse 1. So the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests living in Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, the word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. It also came throughout the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. So this is how we know when he ministered, because we know when these kings reigned. Um, Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the, the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. And so uh, just a little bit of background. This Jeremiah is called a prophet, um, prophecy. I think that gets, gets not too much airtime in, uh, in, in churches and in ministries, but the prophecy actually makes up about a third of the Bible. About 30% of the Bible is, is uh, prophecy and, and um, 16 books devoted to it. And there's a book out in the bookstore called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and Stuart and Fee call the prophets the, uh, the title. I love the title they give to them. They call them Covenant um, covenant enforcement mediators. And so a covenant is um, all through the Old Testament you read about covenants. And, and covenant is just simply how God relates to people. So Old Testament could also be known as Old Covenant. So you have your Old Covenant and your New Covenant. So covenant is just how God relates to people. And the prophets were covenant enforcement mediators. So they would mediate between God and his people. Reminding them, this is what God has asked of us. This is what God has told us. This is who God is. And reminding the people and going to God and saying, God, what do you want us to do? And so there are mediators between God 
and people, and they served, the prophets served between 760 and 460 B.C. Three, there's a three centuries, 300-year stretch where the prophets had their ministry. As they pleaded with the Israelites, pleaded with the Jews to, to return, to repent to God, and to stay true to the covenant, or you're going to go into exile. And then they didn't listen. They went off into exile. So that's kind of the background. And then let's read in uh, chapter 1, verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So I want to give you five thoughts about discerning God's purpose for your life. And the first one is this, to move toward God. Isn't that profound? You want to know what God wants for your life? Move toward God. That, I, I, it's, it's so frustrating when reading this. So there's three verbs in this, in, in verse 5. I chose you, I set you apart, and I appointed you. And it's been so frustrating to me as I've studied this to try to figure out how do I communicate the word chose? And how do, how do we understand the depths of this word? The, the Hebrew word chose is a word yada, which has huge there's just a lot of depth to that word in the Old Testament. It's, it's used in the Old Testament 944 times. And we, and we see that, that it's, it's translated oftentimes chose, or it's translated as acknowledge, or to know, or to enjoy, or to have intimate relationships with. The list goes on. It's just a, it carries a lot of depth. In fact, several times in the Old Testament, this word is used. I'm talking about sexual intimacy. Yada. That, that I know you so well, like a sexual intimacy. And I say that, I say that because um, I want you to, to see that when he says, I chose you or I knew you before I formed you in the womb, there is depth to what God is saying there. He's not just saying, I knew a person named Neil would be born on this date at this time and this place. Or I knew a person named Jeremiah would be born at this time in this place. No, God is saying, before you were formed in the womb, I yada you. I knew you intimately. And we see that kind of claim in other places in the Bible. So a lot of you might be familiar with Psalm 139, 16. says, your eyes saw me when I was formless. God, your eyes saw me before I had form. When I was formless, all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. Isaiah 46, verse 3 says, Listen to me, house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, all, listen to this, all who have been sustained from the womb, Carried along since birth, I will be the same until your old age, and I will bear you up when you turn gray. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will bear and rescue you. It's what Isaiah 46 verse 3 says, that when you were in the womb, I was sustaining you. I was holding you before your mom and dad knew that you existed. At the moment you were conceived, God was there holding you together. 
Before your mom knew to start taking prenatal vitamins and eating healthy, God knew and he was sustaining you. And he says, and I will continue to sustain you when you're born. And even when you're in your old age, when your hair turns gray, I'll continue to hold you and carry you, sustain you through life. Ephesians 1, Paul says it. He says in verse 4, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Before the foundations of the world. So in other words, if you back up from that moment in Ephesians 1 where Paul says this, and you go back through Acts, through the history of the church, as the church began to spread to the nations, and you keep going back through the Gospels where you see Jesus living and dying and doing things with authority, healing with authority, teaching with authority, you go keep going back backwards 400 years between the Old and the New Testament, that 400 years of silence, you keep going back through the time of the exile when Daniel was written and Ezra was written and Nehemiah was written, and you keep going back to the time of the prophets where you have these prophets like Jeremiah pleading with people, repent and, and turn to God, and the people wouldn't listen. You keep going back to the time of the kings and the time of the judges, and you keep going back to the age of the patriarchs where there's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these guys. You keep going back to Noah and the great flood, and you keep going back to where sin entered the world. And keep going back to that moment when God said, let there be light, and light dawned, and light began to travel at 186,000 miles a second. And before then, keep going back when time began. You that moment. I knew you before I formed you. Before the foundations of the world, I chose you. I've been sustaining you. John, when he's telling the story of Jesus, he talks about how Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. So what does the light do? It illuminates. I mean, we'd be in the dark without light. I mean, we, you wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to see anything. So if, if you want to know the purpose for your life, you have to move towards the light. When talking about the riches of the knowledge of God, theologian Wayne Grudem says this, God is always fully aware of everything. If he should wish to tell us the number of grains of sand on the seashore or the number of stars in the sky, he would not have to count them all quickly like some kind of giant computer. Nor would he have to call the number to mind because it was something he hadn't thought, of about, thought about for a time. Rather, he always knows all things at once. All of these facts and all other things that he knows are always fully present in his consciousness. He does not have to reason to conclusions or ponder carefully before he answers, for he knows the end from the beginning, and he never learns and never forgets anything. Or as Pastor Matt Chandler says, God knows every word and every sentence and every paragraph and every chapter of every book that has ever been written or that ever will be written. He knows every truth that has ever been discovered, and he knows every truth that is yet to be discovered. We cannot comprehend the mind of God. So do you want to know God's purpose for your life? 
It doesn't begin with how much you know. It doesn't begin with what your GPA is. It begins with who you know. And that you are dialed into the one who sees everything with absolute clarity. He knows all things with perfect understanding. It's the light of the world. Three times in this chapter about God's calling of Jeremiah, we read the word, the words, the word of the Lord came to me because Jeremiah had postured himself to know God. And as we move towards him, our path will be illuminated and made more clear. And by the way, what you think of you is not nearly as important as what he thinks of you. And before the foundations of the world, God, who sees perfectly, was cherishing you. I don't know how to communicate the glory of that truth. But if you can believe it, own it, it'll help us stand strong. The second thing about understanding our purpose is to make disciples. So it's Fall Discipleship Conference. So it's a theme of the conference, make disciples. The second verb set apart in verse 5 is, or the word consecrated, the idea here is that God has set Jeremiah apart from the world. God not only knows Jeremiah intimately, but he has set Jeremiah apart. Jeremiah is to be for the sole use of God and no other. And if you are a believer in Jesus, the same is true for you. You are set apart for the use of God, for the purposes of God. The noun form of set apart is saint. Believers are saints of God. First Peter calls us the royal priesthood. God says, I set you apart. Okay, check this out. God says, I set you apart before you were born. And that's important. Why? Because it means that before you did anything to prove yourself to God, he had already chosen and set you apart. The will of God is not about how good you are. It's not about how bad you are. The will of God is about God. So this is, this is the hard part. For, and, and I've been doing student ministry now for a long time. And, and colleges just kind of set us up for like, you, you spend your whole time trying to build your resume, trying to get, get the GPA that you want, get the internship that you want, so that you have something of credibility to hand to your future employer. Jesus is not concerned about your resume. He's not looking for your resume. He just wants your heart. I had to wrestle with that coming into tonight. God, could you use somebody like me to do your eternal purposes? And students in California, we're going to talk about a prophet that lived 3,000 years ago, are students in California going to be interested in a 3,000-year-old prophet and his message? The 
will of God is about God and in his grace setting us apart to be a part of his glorious purpose in the world. And this glorious purpose we find really clearly in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, go, go and make disciples of all nations. As believers in Christ, we're set apart for God's purposes to make disciples. So two things we know, to move toward God, to make disciples. In other words, the, the two great commandments, right? To love God and love others. And so when we're, while we're waiting, trying to figure out, okay, what, what is God calling me to for my future? We've got to do those. Like those things are, are, that's kind of the general will of God. That is what he's called all of us to, to love him and love others, to move toward him and to make disciples. When, when I, uh, my wife and I lived overseas for a while, and we came back from, from our time overseas, and I was all screwed up in the mind. I didn't know. I was so confused about what life was about. And I, I'd, I'd met God in these crazy ways overseas. And I got back to, to America, and just everything seemed weird and out of place to me. I had no idea what God wanted for my life. And so I began to roof houses just to pay the bills. We had our first child, and um, I was, had a, my college education. I could speak um, Chinese, so I was able to, to communicate with over half the world, knowing English and Chinese, and, and here I was roofing houses to pay bills. Trying, well, I was trying to figure out God's will for my life. I just kept loving Him and making disciples. And I remember this guy that I was roofing with, I just asked him one day, it's like, hey, my wife and I found that's a, a really good practice for us to read the Bible uh, with friends. And would you and your wife be interested in reading the Bible together? And we found it's really good for our marriage. It's good for just kind of helps our life. And that was kind of my way to kind of begin an evangelistic conversation with him. And he said, I don't know, maybe. So they came over for dinner. We opened up the Word and started reading the Bible together. And they didn't react very well. They didn't like it. But it was... I don't know. It, it, it was just, it, there's something so that makes your heart come alive just being a part of the purposes, the eternal purposes that God has given us. Whether it looks like a success or not, we just keep plugging away, loving God, loving others. Third word, third verb in verse 5 is appointed. This, this is where the, the call of God gets more specific to Jeremiah. Being known and consecrated by God is true for every believer. But what God appoints us to is unique. Now, God appointed Jeremiah as a prophet to the nations in 627 B.C. That is not God's call for you or me. So you can cross that off the list. <laughs> we don't see from this passage, that God, we do see from this passage that God appoints his children to specific acts. So how do we know? How do we know what he's appointed us to do? And I, I'm going to give you just three more thoughts on this. So the third thought is look at your past and ask the question, what's God been preparing me for? In the first three verses of chapter 1, we learn that Jeremiah was the son of a priest. He grew up in Anathoth. Anathoth is a city that's just three miles from Jerusalem. So that's important because... Jeremiah would have seen all the religious festivals in Jerusalem, all the parades and all the activity. He grew up just a, just a walk, you know, just a short walk into that city. And his dad was a priest, so he knew, 
He knew the role of the priest in Judah. He knew the religious festivals and, and their significance. And he, he could see the way Judah was becoming corrupt in their religious activity. And God used Jeremiah's past to give him insight into how to speak into that community. So sometimes asking the question, how has God worked in my past, will help us to discern God's calling in our present. Four, what passions is God stirring in your heart? Jeremiah, if you did a Google, Jeremiah, the prophet, you'd probably find pretty quickly the weeping prophet. He's often called the weeping prophet. Let's listen to a few verses. Jeremiah 4.19. Here's what Jeremiah says. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in agony. Oh, the pain in my heart. My heart pounds. I cannot be silent. For you, my soul, have heard the sound of the ram's horn, the shout of battle. Jeremiah 8, 21, I am broken by the brokenness of my dear people. I mourn. Horror has taken hold of me. Jeremiah 9, 1, if my head were a flowing spring, my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night over the slain of my dear people. Jeremiah 13, 17, but if you will not listen, my innermost being will weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will overflow with tears for the Lord's flock has been taken captive. And we could go on. But you can see the anguish and the burden that Jeremiah had over the people of Judah. So God's tears are also present in this book. So this is a cool thing. God was burdened for the people, and Jeremiah's passions lined up with God's passions, and God used Jeremiah's passions. So ask yourself, what am I passionate about? And how does that passion line up with God's passion? Or maybe ask yourself, what do you hate? My wife hates that there are children in our community that nobody wants. That's God's heart too. God hates that too. And so we've paid attention to that passion and God has provided us with some wonderful experiences the last several years as foster parents. And fifth, and this, this is gonna sound really similar to the first thing, to move toward God, but it's, but it's different. The fifth thing Focus your vision on God. This is the last thing I'm going to mention about discerning our purpose. Focus your vision on God. Let me read verses 6 through 10. This is as far as we'll go tonight. But I protested. So, so God said, I'm going to appoint you a prophet to the nations. You know, I chose you. I set you apart. I appointed, appointed you a prophet to the nations. But I protested. Oh, no, Lord God. Look, I don't know how to speak since I'm only a youth. And then the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth, for you will go to everyone I send you to and speak whatever I tell you. Do not be afraid of anyone, for I will be with you to rescue you. This is the Lord's declaration. Then the Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth, and told me, I have now filled your mouth with my words. See, I have appointed you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and demolish, to build and to plant. Jeremiah tried to dodge God's call on his life because he was afraid. Even though he was in a posture to hear from God, he was looking at everything God was saying through the lens of his own fears and his circumstances. His eyes were fixed on his inexperience and his youth. I, I can't do it, God. 
God wanted to set Jeremiah free from his fears by looking at this opportunity from God's perspective, not through the lens of his fears and insecurities. I, I love uh, Eugene Peterson that just passed away a few days ago. He said, there is an enormous gap. There is an enormous gap between what we think we can do and what God calls us to do. Our ideas of what we can do or want to to do are trivial. God's ideas for us are grand. God does not send us into the dangerous and exacting life of faith because we are qualified. He chooses us in order to qualify us for what he wants us to be and do. I mentioned last night that a name that I that I put on myself that I, that I have a hard time that, that I wrestle with constantly is second string second rate I've always felt like I was good enough to make the team but never good enough to play it's kind of my part of my story and I remember I was in a Bible study several years ago and our Bible study leader asked the, he's just trying to draw us out you know he's trying to, to get us to share about things in our heart and just get, out, get below the surface and he said what's Everybody tell a story about your greatest success and your greatest failure. And right away, he said, what's your greatest failure? Here's where my mind went. I was in high school, basketball game. What I wanted in high school was to be a star athlete. And I worked really hard, but I was never very good. And so we were playing our rival. We were uh, in high school in basketball, and, and we were going to, it was between us and them that was going to be finished first in our um, league that year, and our coach had warned us, these guys play in-your-face pressure defense, so you're going to have to really take care of the ball. And he puts me in the game, and these guys just swarm me they, all over me in defense, and I was so scared. So, you know, I'm second string, right? I, I don't really belong out there. And I remember I did something that I learned, like when I, when I was five years old, you don't do this. And I remember I, I picked up the ball. And I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know what to do, and I panicked, and so I started dribbling it again. I was, you know, varsity, just a sellout crowd. The, the, the gym is full of people, varsity game, and I did this stupid thing. The, re, the ref blows the whistle, turnover, and I remember running down the court, and there's this old man. I have no idea who he was. He's like on the second row in the middle of the court, and, I, and he starts yelling at me, and I kind of glance over at him. His face is all red. He's got a white beard, and Face is red, and he's all, he's like shaking mad, and he's got his hands like this, and he goes, get your head in the game, like right at me. And that's what I shared, my biggest failure. Because that scene, I just, it's like, it's, it happened so many years ago, but it's just so fresh. And that's what I want to, that's what I want to think about when God gives me an opportunity to do something for him. I don't belong. I'm not good enough. Focus on my fears and insecurities. I know my little insecurities are nothing compared to what was going on in Jeremiah's life, but they're real to me. And I've got to deal with them. And here's what I want to close with. I believe that God is planting visions and dreams great things for his kingdom. Passions. He's putting passion
Christians in you that could liberate slaves around the world. He's putting passions in you that could provide shelter and warmth and love for people that are, that that's a foreign concept to them. Planting passions and dreams in your heart to provide for people things they've never thought, never hoped for. Planting passions and visions for you that could take the gospel to people that have never heard or take the gospel into dorms at San Diego State or USC or wherever. Take the gospel into sororities and fraternities. He's planting dreams and passions in you for those things because that's who God is. That's what he does. And every one of those dreams is in danger right now of being killed and being cast aside and letting the fire die because of fear and insecurity. We serve a God who wants to do supernatural things in this world through you. Don't you want to do something supernatural with your life? I do. God wants to do something amazing through you. That's who he is. I want to live a life that would communicate to this world that God is God. I want you to live a life that would communicate to the world that God is who he says he is. To rest. If we're going to stand strong, we rest in our calling. We may not know the specifics of it, but we know he's called us to love him, to move towards him, to make disciples, to rest in that, that that's our glorious purpose. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that your word tonight and throughout this weekend, that somehow you would take the word from the printed page and that you would bring it into our hearts and that it would come to life and that it would bear fruit in our hearts. And I pray that you would um, help us Show us the path to your throne of grace. Help us to be a a people that loves you, that knows you, that like Jeremiah says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. I pray that we would be a people that that is our great thing is that we know you. Pray that you this weekend would be um, kind of catapult us into that. We pray that in Jesus' name.